passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, this morning, um, we're going to be continuing, as I mentioned earlier, through the book of 1 Samuel. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up uh, to 1 Samuel. We'll be in chapter 20 this morning. And as you're opening up to 1 Samuel chapter 20, just kind of want to take a moment to, to see if I can get us in the right framework for understanding this passage. Um, this past week, looking at this passage, I was kind of like, where do we go with this text? Um, it's, uh, it's relatively straightforward. It's, it's relatively long. Um, so what do we do with this chapter? And, uh, and as I was considering it, I, I, just, I looked at this through the lens of, of the reality that David doesn't realize it, but this, is, this chapter is one of those hinge moments in his life. That after this moment, uh, he will spend the next several years... The rest of the book of 1 Samuel, he'll spend as a, a fugitive. His life is going to be forever changed by the events of this chapter and of these verses. And yet, even more transformational than the events of, of chapter 20, I think, are, are the events that, that took place a couple years earlier in David's life. Moments after the events of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we get to 1 Samuel chapter 18, where David meets Jonathan. And we see in chapter 18, verses 3 and 4, that the soul of Jonathan is, is, is just drawn to David. And as this soul is drawn to David, one of the things that we see is that he actually makes a covenant with David. He, he gives up the throne. Jonathan is the crown prince of Israel at this moment. He is, he's the heir to the throne, and he sees the faith of David and he realizes this is the one who is going to be the king of God's people. And so he makes a covenant with David. And that covenant between David and Jonathan really stands as, as kind of the, 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 the lens through which we understand this entire chapter. But not just this entire chapter. I think really how we can, help, we can helpfully look at, at our own lives as well when we go through massive changes in our life, both the good as well as the bad, that there are these moments in our lives that echo down throughout our life, tinting everything that follows them, it's easy for us in those moments to wonder, where is God? What is God possibly doing in my life? And it's easy for us to get overwhelmed in those moments. It's instructive for us to look at 1 Samuel chapter 20. Because the anchor that serves as the foundation for everything that, that David does, not just in this chapter, but really throughout the rest of 1 Samuel, is this idea of a covenant made with Jonathan. But more than just a covenant made with Jonathan, but it's a covenant to keep the promises that God has made to David. This covenant changes everything. It changes the way that David looks at all of the turmoil, all of the hardship, all of, all of the junk that he's about to experience in his life. This covenant enables him 
to endure and to hope in God in the midst of all that will face him. And I think the same is, is true for us as well. As we're going to see in this passage, there is a new covenant that is ours in Christ Jesus that changes everything. And whatever faces us, no matter how hard it may be, no matter how costly it may be, no matter how much challenge that it may face us with, if we are in Christ, then there is a covenant that changes everything for us. But perhaps I should, I should back up. This word covenant isn't one that we use very often today. So I want to take a moment to just uh, define what a covenant is uh, using a definition that um, I, we used when I was teaching in Africa. A covenant is, is basically this. It's a relational bond between two parties that contains obligations and is sealed by an oath. So if you look at Scripture, and every time that there is a covenant that is made between two parties, these things are oftentimes what we will find. It is a relational commitment between two different parties. And as a part of that relational commitment, there are obligations. Both parties have obligations they are to keep as a part of this covenant. And it's sealed with an oath. And this view of covenants, I think, is instrumental in understanding this passage. I mentioned that Jonathan and David have already formed a covenant with one another in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 3 and 4, and that serves as the foundation for everything that they do in this chapter. They go back to that covenant, this, this moment from, from a couple years earlier, and that is the assurance that they have that no matter what they face— they can rely on the other party. They're facing uncertain times, and multiple times, Jonathan and David go back to this covenant, go back to this moment in chapter 18, and they ask their friend to act in light of that covenant. So when we see in chapter 20, and we'll see this in a few moments, when we see David ask Jonathan to do something, or when we see Jonathan ask David to do something, it's not a, a, a case of, hey, you're my friend and I need you to do me a favor. Or you're my friend and I'd really appreciate you doing this for me. Or, or I know you like me and so could you do me a favor and do this? It's, it's more just this idea of you've made this promise to me and now I need you to come through. And this is the lens through which covenant changes everything. This is why we use the term covenant in marriage. Yesterday, I officiated a wedding, and we talked about this very thing, that the, the covenant that a man and a woman make is not a profession of current love. It is a commitment to future love. A covenant is not saying, I have I, I have something that I, I want to express right now. It is saying I am committing myself from this moment onward, not just toward a person, but also towards a specific pattern of actions toward that person. How much truer is this of God? A covenant changes everything. When your life is a mess, it is a great assurance that God has entered into a relational bond with you, that he has obligated himself to you, that you are encouraged in the scriptures to remind him of his commitment to you at the cross. 
But now I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's where we're going to end this morning. I want to just take a moment to look at this passage. This, this passage is, is straightforward. It breaks into three parts. First, we have the plan, then we have the test, and then we have the parting. And that's really what we're going to look at this morning as well. Before we do that, would you join me in a moment of prayer? Father, we, we ask um, that you would speak to us now through your word. God, that you would use this text to fix our eyes and our hearts on Jesus. That you would help us to be people who live lives for your glory, for your honor, and we would do so in light of the gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so our text picks up right after the events of 1 Samuel chapter 19. At the end of that chapter, Saul has found out that David is hiding out with Samuel and Naoth Ramah, and he comes to kill him. But God intervenes in a supernatural way, and he gives David the chance to escape. But David doesn't do what we would expect him to do. It's not the primary thing on his mind to just get away from Saul to escape. There's something more important to David as we look at the beginning of this chapter. I love this picture of David because more important to David than his own life is his relationship with the Lord. And so instead of running off and hiding, he actually goes back to Gibeah, the capital of Israel at this time, to ask Jonathan if he has committed any sin. Take a look at verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? To David, the only thing worse than death was bringing dishonor upon the name of his God. And so he comes to Jonathan and he says, Hey, Jonathan, what have I done wrong? What is my sin? Why is your dad trying to kill me? Because is it something that I've done to offend God and, and God is, is, is sending him to, to bring judgment upon me? And we have lots that we can learn from David in this moment. We can learn from his priorities. We can learn from his humility. He's examined his own heart. He can't find anything that he's done wrong in his own heart, but he knows that he, he has blind spots. And so he goes to his friend Jonathan. He says, Jonathan, if there's something that I have done to offend your father, if there's something that I have done to offend the Lord, please let me know. Examine my heart and my life, Jonathan. Verse 2. And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do. Jonathan denies that Saul is trying to put David to death. Maybe he's still coming to terms with the actions of his father. Back in chapter 19, we see that Saul is trying to, to kill David, and, and yet Jonathan intervenes. And, and we end that section, the beginning of chapter 19, with Saul actually making an oath to the Lord, saying, as long as the Lord lives, David shall live. And so maybe in this moment, Jonathan is coming to terms with the fact that his father has made this serious oath, and yet his actions show that he's, he's reneged that oath, that he's, he's trying to put him to death, and it's a state of his father's spiritual state. And yet David persists in his claim, saying, hey, no, no, seriously, your dad is trying to, to kill me. 
And he points out that Saul has begun hiding things from Jonathan because he knows of their closeness and their friendship. And so David, to express the gravity of his situation, he invokes the name of the Lord. And he basically says, as God is my witness, I am not lying. Your dad is trying to kill me. And that catches Jonathan's attention. Verse 5. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king, but let me go that I might hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked me to seek of you to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, Good, it will be well with your servants, but if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. So David's plan is, is straightforward. He's, he's going to create a test that's going to determine whether Saul is um, seriously trying to kill him or not, and second, whether or not he is guilty of any sin toward Saul. Now, roughly every month there was a festival that coincided with the new moon in Israel, and uh, so as a part of that, there would be these festivals that would be held, including in the royal court, and as you would expect, David, being a part of the royal court, was expected to be a part of that festival. And so if he's not at the festival, how Saul responds will give them everything they need to know about Jonathan's dad, about whether he is trying to kill Saul or not. If Saul is spiritual and he hears that David is not at this festival because he is worshiping the Lord, then everything should be okay. Everything should be good. But if he responds a different way, it will reveal his true heart. Now notice here the reason why David comes to Jonathan for help. It's, it's found in verse 8, the next verse. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should, I, why should you bring me to your father? Notice why David comes to Jonathan. It's all about this covenant. He says, you've brought me into a covenant of the Lord with you. We see that in the first half. Let's go ahead and just read the first half once more. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought yourself, your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. David reminds Jonathan that he has initiated a covenant with David. That there is now this relational bond between the two of them. And now David comes to Jonathan for help, asking him to deal kindly with him. Now, if you're someone who writes in your Bible, marks in your Bible, go ahead and underline that, those two words, deal kindly. Because those two words are, are crucial for understanding this passage. We don't talk a lot about original languages, but this is going to be one of those exceptions here. This phrase, deal kindly, is a very important one. It comes from the word in Hebrew, hesed. Go ahead and say that with me, hesed. All right, one, two, three. Hesed. Hey, good job. Well done. Hesed is this crucial word in the Old Testament, and it's hard for us to translate because it carries so much weight, so much meaning, that we can't translate it with just one or two words. And so there are a number of words that are used to translate this idea of hesed love. My 
best way or the best way I can think of of stating it in a, in a short way is just saying steadfast loving kindness and faithfulness. So when David is asking Jonathan to show him or to deal kindly with him, he's saying, I want you to show me steadfast loving kindness and faithfulness. But there's more here. Because whenever this phrase or this term hesed is used, almost every single time it is in relationship to covenant. Oftentimes it is used of God's steadfast loving kindness and faithfulness shown to us. But here it's saying, I want you to act in accordance with the covenant that you have made with me. I want you to show me steadfast love and kindness and faithfulness because you have made a covenant with me. In other words, what David is saying is, hey, Jonathan, I, I need you to act in light of the covenant that you have made. I need you to be faithful to me. I need you to show me steadfast love and keep the promises that you have made to me. So David here, he comes to Jonathan for help, not so much because they're friends, that's true, not because there's this brotherly love between them, even though that's true as well, but because of this covenant. David is reminding Jonathan of their covenant, of this promise, and all of the obligations. So here, a couple years after this covenant has been formed, he's saying, all right, now, my friend, now it's time for you to honor that commitment that you have made to me. That's what we see in verse 8. Verse 9, and Jonathan said, far be it from you, if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you Roughly, And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. So notice that Jonathan, he first agrees with David's plan. But there's one part of David's plan that hasn't been fleshed out, and that is, if Saul has murderous intent towards David, how will that be communicated to David in a way that can assure that David will remain safe? Jonathan, we'll see in a few moments, is going to fill out the rest of the plan. But before that, David, or excuse me, Jonathan wants to go back to this idea of covenant. He says, David, you've, you've brought this covenant up. You've said, this is what it means to keep the covenant. Will you keep the covenant? And then Jonathan responds. That's what we have starting in verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness when I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow on the, or the third day. Behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do, do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. So back in verse 8, David asks Jonathan, will you keep the covenant? Will you deal kindly with me? And Jonathan invokes the name of the Lord three times in these two verses saying, yes, I will keep the covenant. But that's not all. David says there are obligations for keeping this covenant of how you will treat me. And Jonathan says, well, just so you know, there are also obligations for how you will treat me as well. And that's what we have in the next couple of verses, starting in verse 14. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house 
forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Again, if you mark in your Bibles, underline steadfast love, both in verse 14 and in verse 15. Because that word steadfast love is the same word as deal kindly in verse 8. It's this idea of, of hesed. It is, I want you to act in a way that is in line with the covenant that we have made with one another. Back in verse 8, David says, Jonathan, I need you to act in light of the covenant. Now he ha- we have Jonathan saying, David, I need you to act in light of the covenant as well. And just a, a, a quick note on this. Can you see Jonathan's faith in these verses? I want you to imagine that you are um, overhearing this conversation between these two men. One of them is the crown prince of Israel, the future king of Israel, the first in line for the throne, and the other is a soon-to-be fugitive. And you hear one of these men say, I need you to show me mercy when you become king, but it's not the crown prince that is being asked for mercy. It is instead the crown prince asking the fugitive for mercy saying, I need you to come through and show me mercy. Jonathan acts with great faith in this moment because of the plans and promises of God. He knows that while he is in power right now, God's plan means that David will one day be the king. And rather than David acting like all of the other kings of the world getting rid of all of the other heirs to the throne when there's a change of dynasty. He says, I want you to act in light of the covenant. I need you to show me steadfast love, faithfulness, kindness. See, Jonathan sees that his future is completely, totally bound up with the plan of God. He knows that he will never have the throne, and so he runs to the Lord's anointed king. He clings to him. He asks for mercy. And David readily agrees. A a covenant changes everything about how these two relate to one another. It gives both of them assurance of how the other will act. Verse 18. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was at hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, go, find the arrows. If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you are to come for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. The big question facing David and Jonathan as a part of this plan that David is putting together is how they will be able to communicate danger to David in case Saul fails this test. They both assume that Jonathan will be watched And so they put together this plan in case he is not able to communicate with David so that David and Jonathan can both keep this covenant. Again, verse 23, 
They, they refer to the fact that there is this covenant between the two of them, that both of them are obligated to respond or, or act toward one another in a certain way. So that's the plan. And we get to the next day, and now we have the test starting in verse 24. Saul has returned from Naoth Ramah. He comes back to Gibeah for the new moon festival. But David is not there. Verse 24. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite and Abner sat at Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. David's absence is impossible to ignore here. Saul knows, however, that David takes his, his relationship with the Lord very seriously, and so he thinks, well, maybe he's just ceremonially unclean, therefore he can't be around people for a day. And so Saul chooses not to make much of this situation in this moment. He thinks, you know what, my chance will come tomorrow. There will be another chance. I, I love the way the text describes this in verse 26. It Something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. It just shows us Saul's heart attitude in this moment. He's trying to convince himself that he'll still have a chance to put David to death the next day. Speaking of the next day, verse 27. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. So a day has passed. David is absent again. It rules out the excuse of ceremonially being unclean. So Saul asked Jonathan at this moment, where is David? And Jonathan responds by saying, you know what, I'm, I'm the crown prince. You were absent. So David came before me. He had this religious celebration he wanted to go to. I gave him leave because I am the crown prince. I was acting in your stead. And this is the defining moment. How Saul responds to this determines whether Saul will pass the test or whether he will fail the test. And if we've been paying attention so far in 1 Samuel, even if we haven't read the rest of this chapter, it's no surprise that Saul fails the test. Verse 30, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. The answer could not be clearer. Saul has failed the test. David and Jonathan have their answer. But I also want us to consider that here this test is not just for Saul. It's also a test for Jonathan. That in this moment, Jonathan is being tested. Here's what I mean by that. Jonathan has given up 
his kingdom. He's given up his throne. He's given up his future. He's even given up his family. And he's thrown it all at the feet of David. That when he sees David, and he understands that David is the Lord's chosen king, he reaches this conclusion that everything that is his is worth nothing compared to being a part of God's plan. And if David isn't trustworthy, if David changes his mind, if David does not keep the covenant, then Jonathan will lose everything. But here in this moment, Jonathan has a chance to take it all back. The throne that he has given up could be his. The kingdom that he hands over to David could be his once again. His future, his family, all of it is right here. All he has to do is listen to his dad and go get David from the field, bring him to his dad, and his dad will make everything right. Don't miss how Saul tries to get Jonathan to turn his back on David, to turn his back on the Lord. He shames him. He says, David, or Jonathan, you're an absolute fool. Look at everything that you've given up. Shame on you. He tries guilting Jonathan. He says, consider how your actions are reflecting upon me and upon your mother, Jonathan. How could you possibly betray me like this? He tries tempting him. He says, if you ever hope to be king, then David has to be put to death. Just think of all the good you could do, Jonathan, if you were the king. Just bring David to me, and I will make everything right again. And the kingdom will be yours once more. I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that Saul's tactics here to get Jonathan to forsake the Lord, his plan, the Lord's chosen king, are eerily similar to the tactics of the evil one, eerily similar to the tactics of the world. Shame, guilt, temptation, telling us that the world will be ours if we just forsake the Lord, if we forsake his chosen king, if we forsake his kingdom. How will you respond? How does Jonathan respond here? Jonathan chooses to be faithful to the covenant and to the king in spite of all that it costs him. Verse 32. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Jonathan yet again tries to get his father to see reason. He says, why should David be put to death? He's not done anything wrong. And when he tells his dad that, Saul tries to kill him. And Jonathan is angry. But rather than being angry at the shame that he has experienced from his father, he's, he's angry because of the shame that his father has shown to David and to the Lord. 
You want to be like someone in this passage? You can find no better person to be like than Jonathan, this man that chooses the Lord and his king, who chooses to get upset about the Lord's glory and honor rather than his own. This test about whether he will stay faithful to the Lord and to his king or go after the world, Jonathan passes with flying colors. What an example for us today. Jonathan passes the test. The same cannot, of course, be said of Saul. So Jonathan goes to inform David in the final part of this chapter, which is the parting, starting in verse 35. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him, and when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew about the matter, and Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, go and carry them to the city. After the events that just took place in Saul's court, Jonathan understandably thinks he's being watched, so he goes through the prearranged plan to, to signal to David. But in God's providence, things end up being uh, clear of danger, and so he decides to stay in the field and talk to David in person, which is what we see in verse 41 and 42. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between, be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and parted, and Jonathan went into the city. David and Jonathan are united in soul. They're united in covenant, and yet they will soon be separated. After this, they only see one, one another one more time shortly before Jonathan's death, and only for a brief time. And this is a bittersweet parting. And we see the same themes crop up that we have seen time and time again in the story of David, in the story of Jonathan. They, they love one another. There's this self-sacrifice. There's this covenant commitment. They are both committed to a submission to the Lord and seeking his glory and honor above all things. And this parting is an appropriate way to end this chapter because it prepares us to consider the underlying theme, the underlying current of this chapter and what it means for us today. You see, this chapter, just like virtually every other chapter we've looked at in 1 Samuel, is really operating on two planes. The first is, is what I would just consider the, the, the historical. If you were to ask, why is this chapter in the Bible, the, the easy answer is, well, it's because it happened. And it shows us how David ended up on the run Maybe more than that, we would say this chapter shows us the historical reality of how God takes care of David through this covenant with Jonathan. It shows us how God takes care of Jonathan through this covenant with David. 
Years, years later, after this moment, 2 Samuel chapter 9, we see this moment where David keeps his commitment, his covenant to the family of Jonathan. He exalts Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, and in his kingdom and says, you will always have a place in my kingdom. And I think there's something that we can learn from that, that God takes care of his people primarily through his people, through the faithfulness of other people people, those who are in the church. And Jonathan and David serve as an incredible example of that. That's one plane that this text operates on, but there's another plane, a a plane that, that shows us not just the historical reality, but also that David and Jonathan are pointing us to something bigger and better and greater than what we see in this text. The covenants between David and Jonathan, like other covenants in the Old Testament, are a shadow of something better, of a covenant that is to come. And it's not until we get to the time of Jesus, the son of David, the Lord's true chosen king, that at long last we see the covenant that we wait for at last arrive. Jesus, as he's looking forward to his death on the cross, declares that his death on the cross would establish a new covenant. He says this in Luke, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The author of Hebrews declares that the covenant Jesus makes with us is better than anything that has come before it. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. When we read this chapter in light of the cross, we can see that David and Jonathan point us to the greater reality of Jesus and the church. Jesus, the Lord's anointed, God's chosen king, has made a covenant with you. At the cross. And here we see the heart of the message of this text. If the covenant between David and Jonathan changes everything, how much more does the covenant at the cross change everything? We call this covenant the gospel, the good news, and it changes everything. And here in 1 Samuel chapter 20, we have just two clear ways that this gospel changes how you can relate to God. That everything is changed. Everything is altered for the good because of the covenant at the cross, because of the gospel. One of the things that we've seen throughout our time in 1 Samuel over and over again is that King David The Lord's chosen king points us to King Jesus, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. When we look to David in 1 Samuel, our eyes are drawn to to King Jesus, this greater king. And just like Jonathan has entered into a covenant with David, the cross enables us to enter into a covenant with King Jesus. And this covenant... At the cross, this this gospel transforms everything, including the way you live. 
It, it transforms the way you live. Remember, a covenant is a relational bond. But it's not just a relational commitment, it's a commitment where we obligate one uh, ourselves to another party. And so in the gospel, King Jesus has every right to expect you to live in a certain way because of the covenant. In coming to Jesus, you have already committed yourself to a pattern of life. 1 Samuel chapter 20, David expects Jonathan to act because of the covenant. And that covenant meant that Jonathan had to lay down any claim to the throne, that he had to submit to David, the true king, that he had to act in a certain way, that he had to show steadfast loving kindness and faithfulness to David, the king. Have you considered that in the gospel, the same is true for you as well? The gospel transforms the way you live. The gospel is a call to follow in the footsteps of Jonathan in this passage, laying down any claim to the throne of your life, submitting to Jesus, living a life of steadfast loving kindness and faithfulness towards God and towards other people. This is what the letters of the Old Testament are about. If you read New Testament, excuse me, letters in the New Testament, New Testament letters, you read them and they're filled with commands. And these commands aren't the covenant. They're not how we enter into relationship with God. They're not the gospel. But they are obligations of your relationship, your covenant with God. It's how you are supposed to live in light of the relationship you have with God. God cares deeply about how you live because of the cross. He cares deeply about being on the seat of, your th- of the throne of your life. He cares about you being a person of righteousness. He cares about you bearing fruit, being committed to the mission of the church. And because of the cross... And the covenant, the gospel, you've surrendered all worldly claims on your life and are obligated to King Jesus. Of course, as we see in this passage, covenant isn't just one way. It's not as though God makes a covenant with us at the cross and then lays all these expectations upon us. At the cross, we see the oath. We see God take upon himself through Jesus, the curse of us breaking the covenant because we don't keep it. We do not give up the throne of our lives to God. We do not live lives of steadfast loving kindness and faithfulness. And so at the cross, we have this oath, we have this moment where God takes upon himself the punishment of breaking the covenant and he also obligates himself to us. This is truly marvelous to me, that the gospel not only changes the way you live, it also changes the way that you can talk to God. Did you notice in 1 Samuel 20, as we were working our way through this text, how many times David and Jonathan tell the other person to act in a way that is already established in the covenant? 
They go back to the covenant and said, I need you to act in a way that you have already committed and promised to. And you read that over and over again, and you might wonder, well, is that because they can't trust one another? Or, or is it because the, there's some skepticism there? Like, maybe this is just too good to be true. No, the reality is, it's because the covenant serves as a foundation to ask something of the other person. They point back to the covenant as the proof positive, as this relational bond of why they can ask someone to work on their behalf. And the same is true of God. The same is true of God. Because of the gospel, because of the new covenant, you can ask God to work on your behalf. You can ask God to keep his covenant. You can cry out to God when your life is falling apart and say, God, you've said that you will keep your promises and I need you to come through. In the gospel, God has obligated himself to his people. He has bound himself to a people that he will never forsake. He will never leave. He will never abandon. He will never forget. And at its core, prayer is reminding God of that very thing. That's all that prayer is. It's taking the promises that God has made to his people and saying, God, would you deliver on those promises? It's not because God is forgetful. It's not because God can't be trusted. We have to keep pushing him to actually do what he has said he will do. It's because God keeps his promises And he delights when his people run to those promises in his word and use them as the fuel for their prayers. And when you grasp this, that God invites you to regularly remind him to keep his promises, this is life-changing. It transforms the way that you pray because this is how the Bible prays. You look at the Psalms and when the psalmist cries out, how long, O Lord, this is exactly what's happening. This is what you've promised. God, come through on your promises. This is why the apostles in the New Testament pray for God's kingdom to spread. It's because, God, you've said that this was happening. We need you to, to come through on your promises. This is why Jesus tells his disciples to pray, saying, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And saying, this is what your will is. Come, establish your will on this earth. Just this morning, in, I was reading through 2 Samuel on my own. Second Samuel chapter 7, we have this incredible promise that God gives to David, the Davidic covenant, and God makes these astounding promises. And right after God makes these promises, you know what David says in verse 25? He says, God, do it. And that's his prayer. Do it. God, come through. Establish your promises. Keep your covenant. What a, covenant, what a comfort it is that in spite of the circumstances of your life that you can say that God has not forgotten you. That in the gospel, the God of the universe has not just entered into relationship with you, but he's also obligated himself to you. He's committed himself to you. And he longs for you to cry out to him to keep his promises.
A covenant changes everything. And that's true of Jonathan and David. How much more true is it in the gospel? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it reminds us of the glorious truth of what you have done for us in Jesus. God, you've made many promises to your people in your word, and we ask that you would keep those promises. Along with the saints throughout the ages, we would cry out, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Establish your kingdom now and forevermore. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.